This is episode 230, featuring a baker's dozen of your most pressing questions about the training process. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features a collection of questions that were submitted to me on Twitter and Instagram by listeners of the podcast. We're going to discuss the sandwiching concept, side stitches, optimal cadence, off-season training, muscle cramps, and more. Thank you to the athletes who submitted their questions, and if you want to contribute in the future, make sure you're following me on social. My handle is JasonFitz1. And if you're new to the podcast, you can expect even more training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space. My goal is to elevate your thinking about the sport, help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Don't miss our thriving YouTube channel where we just surpassed 55,000 subscribers. We have hundreds of videos on how to run longer, strength workouts, how to stay healthy, and run with better form, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog with topics as varied as how to know when you're ready to start training for a marathon, the biggest diet mistakes runners make, and more. You'll also find our free email courses on strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and more. Plus, the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode is supported by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes AG1, a category-leading greens mix that has 75 vitamins and minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, antioxidants, and adaptogens. To make taking control of your health even easier, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, which I highly recommend in the winter months, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Jason, and you can choose from a single purchase or you can sign up for a monthly drop. I try to have one serving every day of AG1 to help me cover my bases and for a nice boost of midday energy. You can see all the details at athleticgreens.com slash Jason. Okay, runners, let's jump right into our Q&A session today. Our first question is, how should a training plan differ for a trail event compared with a road race? For example, a trail marathon versus a road marathon. Now, depending on the type of trail that you might be preparing for and what that trail includes, so for example, if I'm running a trail race here in Colorado, I'm probably going to be going up in altitude and dealing with a lot of elevation changes. That might not be the case for you. But no matter what kind of trail event that you're getting ready for, you're probably going to be running a slower pace than if you were running on the road. So it's going to be more important in training to focus a bit more on time on feet versus the actual distance that you're covering, especially when you're doing your long runs. So if you're training for a trail half marathon or a trail marathon, it's probably a good idea to focus a little bit more on time rather than distance. 
Because if you were to go out and run 20 miles on some gnarly terrain that has a lot of elevation changes, that might take you so much extra time that it's too stressful on your body. So focus a bit more on time on feet versus distance. The other thing you want to make sure is you're running on similar terrain while you're training, especially on your long runs. You don't want to get to the race itself and discover that, wow, you're just not prepared at all for the type of terrain that you're going to be running on. And if you're running a long race, like a half or a marathon, this is especially true. You want to make sure that your body is capable on similar terrain as the race itself. Now, strength training is going to help protect you from all that extra time on your feet and the technicality of the terrain itself. So now's a good time to start strength training, to get on similar terrain, and worry a bit more about time rather than distance. Our second question is about side stitches. Why do I get side stitches when I'm running downhill? Now, this is a tricky question because right now, nobody actually knows the definitive answer for why runners get side stitches, whether it's from running downhill, uphill, on flat terrain, or anything else. Now, side stitches are a bit more common in beginner runners and those runners who are dramatically changing their training volume or their intensity. So if you're just getting started with running, whether you're a beginner or you've just taken a long period of time off from running, maybe from injury, maybe just because you didn't want to lace up your shoes for a couple months, you do have to be more cautious with increasing both your mileage and the overall intensity of your training. My hunch is the reason for side stitches is that it's essentially a muscle cramp of the diaphragm. And, you know, while some breathing patterns might help a little bit with the pain that you're experiencing, ultimately, you need to treat that muscle cramp the same way you would treat any other muscle cramp. You need to let it calm down. You need to let it settle down a little bit. And then increasing your mileage and your intensity in a bit more of a strategic and gradual way is going to help you overcome that side stitch and help make it so it's not a recurring problem. Our third question is, how do I know what days to sandwich my strength training on? Now, for those runners who have gone down the rabbit hole of my coaching philosophy, you know that I love when runners sandwich their runs. This means that you are sandwiching the run in between a dynamic warm-up and some runner-specific core and strength training. Now, I think runners should be doing this for every single run that they do. So if you run four times a week, you are going to be sandwiching that run with a dynamic warm-up beforehand every single time, and then you're going to end your run with some strength training. Now, that doesn't mean that strength training is particularly difficult, so don't think you have to be in the gym lifting big weight four times a week. That is excessive for sure. But we do want to be doing some type of runner-specific core or strength training after every run. It helps act as a cool down. It helps improve your range of motion, especially after some runs where you just feel very tight and it can really help you feel better throughout the day. Now, if you are lifting weights in the gym, whether that's a home gym or you're going out to a commercial gym, You don't have to do that after every single day. In fact, I don't recommend that at all. That's too much lifting for distance runners. Instead, we want to be lifting two times a week. 
Now, it's always a good idea to lift after running because our running is our main sport. That is our sport-specific exercise. So we always want to prioritize that sport-specific exercise. And if we were to lift a bunch of weights in the gym, you know, get nice and swole and, you know, that's just going to make us very sore or very tired. And if we were to go out and try to do a long run or a workout or maybe even an easy run, we would sacrifice the quality of that run. And we certainly don't want to do that. Any strength training that we're doing, whether it's body weight at home or heavier weightlifting in the gym, should be in service of our running. It should complement, supplement, and make your running better. If you're so sore or tired from that lifting session, then we need to either reduce the volume or the intensity of your lifting so that it's a bit easier. Our next question is, which days are supposed to be easy in my training plan? So when you're reading a training plan, usually any non-workout day is considered an easy day in terms of pacing. Now, easy runs can be labeled base runs, easy runs, or distance runs, And they're all done at a mostly easy effort. Even the long run is usually just a glorified easy run. It's a run where you run the same effort as any other base run or distance run, except you're just going for a longer period of time. Now, recovery runs are typically the shortest run of the week, and they're done at a slightly slower pace to really enhance the recovery effort. So if you're looking at your training plan and you're not sure which runs are easy runs, it's your non-workout days. The days where you are running a fartlek or a hill workout or a tempo run or a progression or any sort of goal pace running, that's not an easy day. By definition, it's a workout day. Those are much more difficult than your easy days. But if your training plan just has a certain amount of mileage on the plan itself, then that is a great candidate for an easy effort. And let's also remember that easy pace isn't really a pace. It's technically an effort. And it's going to be based on how fatigued you are, how sore you are, how caffeinated you might be, whether or not you've done a good warm up before that run, whether or not it's zero degrees outside or 80 degrees outside. The actual pace of your easy effort runs is going to vary dramatically based on all of those factors. So above all, make sure that your easy runs are just easy. They feel easy. And you can use my three C's of easy running to help you with this. Make sure those runs are conversational. If you're running with someone, you can carry on a conversation. You're not panting. You're not gasping for breath. You can mostly spit out complete sentences. It should also feel controlled. At no point should you be flailing around. Sometimes in workouts or races, when we are really pushing the effort, we don't feel in control. And sometimes that's okay. But it should never be okay in an easy run. And the final C is comfortable. It should feel comfortable. It's not something where you are stretching, your breathing isn't labored, your heart rate isn't super high, and you just feel comfortable when you're out there running. If it is conversational, you feel in control and comfortable, you're probably running an easy effort. Our next question is, how do I run slowly while maintaining a cadence of 180 steps per minute? Which is more important? Well, I actually think this is a trick question because I don't think every runner should be trying to run at 180 steps per minute all the time. Now, this was popularized by Jack Daniels in his classic OG training book, The Daniels Running Formula. 
And he found that when elite runners were running, they were having a cadence of about 180 steps per minute. Now, first, let's talk about cadence a little bit. Number one, cadence should really only be measured when you're running an easy effort because cadence is partly a function of how fast you're running. So if you're running a workout and you're running 5K pace or tempo pace, that pace is gonna have a much higher cadence than if you were just running a very easy recovery day. So it's only accurate when we're measuring your cadence on an easy run. And because it's partly a function of speed, it does depend on what your easy pace actually is. And I have a general rule where if you're a runner running under 10 minutes a mile for your easy pace, I would love to see you somewhere over 170 steps per minute. There's no magic reason why 180 steps per minute is the goal. I mean, it is somewhat arbitrary, isn't it? Why not 179 or 181? Ultimately, if we're over 170 steps per minute, that makes sure our cadence is light, quick, and we're not running with more bounding strides. Now, if you're a runner whose easy pace is slower than 10 minutes a mile, then I would love for you to be over 160 steps per minute. And that will ensure the same thing, that you're not running with long bounding strides, you're not over striding, you're not putting extra stress on your legs. And if we're talking about which one is more important, it's definitely the effort of your run. So if you're running an easy effort, and we just talked a little bit more about easy pace versus effort, then I want it to be comfortable, controlled, and conversational. It doesn't matter if your cadence is 172 or 174 or 178. What's way more important is the overall effort of that run. Our next question is, what do you do if you can't do your long run for the week due to weather or some other reason? Is it best just to get in the total volume that was planned for that week or something else? Now, if you're a runner who's getting ready for a half marathon or a marathon, I do think the long run is the most important run that you're going to do during the week. It's your priority run because it's most specific to the event that you're getting ready for. But with that said, because it usually happens at the end of the week on a Saturday or a Sunday for most runners, if you can't do it because let's say you just had a snowstorm, the first thing that I would do is number one, see if you can get out there for an equivalent amount of time. So let's say your long run is supposed to be two hours. Well, running in a snowstorm might be okay for two hours, but you're not going to cover the same amount of mileage. That's okay. The other thing that I might look at is, well, can you do this run on a treadmill if the weather is bad or you just can't get outside for some reason? That will allow you to still get in your long run, but you're protected from the elements. Now, if you can't do that, then I might try to run as much as you can and then cover the rest with cross training. So for example, if you're supposed to run 20 miles, but you tried running outside, the weather is too bad and you only got in five, well, let's try to do the equivalent of 15 miles on the bike or the elliptical, or let's do some pool running. And we can get in the pool or do some other cross training for let's say two, two and a half hours. I think all of those options are great options because they allow you to get in a workout that is very, very similar than the long run that you had planned initially. 
But if you simply can't do anything, if you can't do it outside, if you don't have access to a treadmill, if you don't have access to a cross-training modality that allows you to get in the equivalent amount of time doing some cross-training, I think it's best to just skip it. Because if you try to cram it in early in the next week or the next day, that's going to start affecting the following week's training. And if you are impacting the following week's training and you don't know how to modify your training schedule, then you might be put into a position where you try to run that workout too soon after your long run or the training density of your training week just becomes too high because all of a sudden you're doing a long run and a workout and then your next long run in a much more condensed time period. And I just actually wrote an article for Lifehacker about the concept of training density. You can search Lifehacker for running density and I'm sure it'll come right up if you wanna learn a little bit more about this concept. So if you are training for a long race, Try to do everything you can to get in that long run or the equivalent of that long run. But if you just can't do it, let's just skip it and move on. I think for most of us, we'll be just fine if we miss one long run. Okay, we're going to move on to a question about strength training. What is the benefit of doing reverse lunges compared with forward lunges? Aren't the muscle requirements the same in both directions? Why risk stumbling while stepping backwards? This is an interesting question because I think part of the answer to this is in the question itself. The person asking the question seems to understand that stumbling while stepping backwards into a reverse lunge is a possibility. And that's because reverse lunges do require a little bit more coordination to help you keep your balance because, quite simply, your body isn't used to moving in reverse. We usually are taking steps in front of us, making that normal forward lunge a much uh, a movement that is much closer to what we're doing on an everyday basis. But I do think there's value in variety and in challenging our body in different ways. So a reverse lunge is beneficial for that reason, plus that the movement is slightly different than a forward lunge. So you are using your muscles in a slightly different way. And because reverse lunges require more coordination and balance, you can check to see how fatigued you are by doing some reverse lunges. So if you're not feeling too hot before a workout and you try some reverse lunges and you are falling all over the place, you're stumbling, you might need to run that workout a little bit more slowly or just take an extra day of easy running before you attempt your next big workout. It is a great indicator of nervous system fatigue. And if you are really fatigued because you've been running some fast workouts, it could be an indication that running another hard workout or even a long run could be an injury risk. So the value in reverse lunges is twofold. Number one, you're getting a bit more variety. You're doing a, a lunge that requires a little bit more proprioception, coordination, and balance. There is value in that in helping you become a better athlete. If you're not stumbling, if you're not falling, if you are very smooth doing reverse lunges, I think you're more athletic and less likely to get injured than someone who really struggles with reverse lunges. Plus, they're almost a diagnostic exercise that allow you to look at your body and say, well, how fatigued am I really? Can I do this exercise without falling or stumbling? And if you can, you're probably ready for that workout. Okay, moving on to the next question. 
How would you define and measure running load? Ooh, this is an interesting one. I love this. We could probably better term this and and call it workload. Workload is a measure of both volume and intensity. So workload is typically used by coaches to talk about the overall difficulty of the training that you're doing. And if we're talking about both volume and intensity, volume is your overall weekly mileage, or it's the amount of time that you're on your feed running. Now, intensity is a little bit more complex. It's a combination of the workouts that you're doing. You know, are they aerobic workouts? Are they much faster, more VO2 max oriented workouts? But also let's look at your easy running. Are you running really, really easy every day? Or a lot of your easy runs at a moderate effort? Are you running some of your runs as a progression instead because you like finishing faster? Well, that's going to affect the overall workload of your training. Plus recovery days. I know that some of my friends who are very good at running, they had periods of time when their workload was so high that they didn't really take any easy days. They still were running high mileage on days that were considered their easy days. And so I would argue that they never really had a true recovery day. They had a lot of more easy days where they might be running 12 miles or so. And so all of those factors make up the overall intensity of your training. And I would actually encourage runners not to try to come up with some metric that encapsulates workload, which is both your volume and then the more difficult concept of intensity. Instead, I think it's best to measure each one separately. And that way you're able to progress a little bit more intelligently. You can increase your mileage in a bit more of a strategic way because you're not worrying about the intensity. And then when you are worrying about intensity, you can run easy or very, very easy, almost a recovery effort based on how you feel. So you're giving yourself some flexibility to run slower when you need to, or pick up the pace a little bit if you're feeling great. And then when it comes to your workouts, you can gradually increase both the volume and the intensity of your workouts over time. And if you've ever followed a good training program, you'll see that workload does increase over the course of a training plan because both volume and the difficulty of workouts typically increases in a training plan. And if you're doing both strategically, then the total workload will also be increasing a bit more strategically as well. I know a lot of fancy running watches sort of measure total workload and they say things like, you're running at 99%, great work. And then when you you know start to run a little bit less or you, you miss a workout, that number starts to decrease and you want to get back up to, you know, 98 to 99%. I don't fully trust those fancy metrics. I'm not really sure how they are calculated. And so for that reason, I would much rather listen to my body. Rather than listening to a watch, your body's always going to tell you the truth. Our next question is the million dollar question. <laughs> Why do I always cramp? This runner says that he's using uh, Precision Hydration, a former sponsor of the podcast. You can check out episode 140 with Precision Hydration CEO, Andy Blow. And we talk a lot more about hydration in total. But, you know, this one runner is asking, you know, I'm using Precision Hydration. I still have the same results. It never fails. Every race in a 50K, I always cramp. 
Now I am a bigger runner, six foot one, 210 pounds. I'm a CrossFit type of guy that runs one race a year. So this is the million dollar question because there could be a lot going in to this that could cause a muscle cramp. So if we're talking about a side stitch, there was a previous question about side stitches. Nobody really knows what a side stitch uh, is caused by. But when it comes to a muscle cramp, there's usually three reasons why muscle cramps happen. The least likely is because of an electrolyte imbalance. Now that's because most of us get enough sodium and other electrolytes through our diet, especially if we're supplementing with another type of of electrolyte supplement in our training and on race day, we're probably getting enough electrolytes. And to be so deficient in electrolytes that you're experiencing a muscle cramp, that has to be a pretty severe scenario. Whether you are a high sweater with very salty sweat and you're out there on a very hot day, you know, though that trifecta of issues could come together and make you cramp because of electrolyte problems. But for most of us, it's usually not a failure to get in enough electrolytes. Usually it's one of the other two reasons. The other two are number one, you are trying to run something that is just simply too long or difficult for you. So for example, If you only ran 16 miles as your longest run in training as you're getting ready for a marathon, and then you start cramping at mile 19 or 20 in the marathon, I'm going to put my money on the fact that you're simply not well-trained for what you're attempting to do. You're attempting to run 26.2 miles. You only ran 16 in training. And so once you get far enough beyond that point at which your body is not used to, your muscles start to rebel against you and you get a muscle cramp. Now, the other reason why runners typically get muscle cramps is not because they're trying to run too long than what their body is ready for. They're trying to run too fast than what their body is ready for. And so if you are someone who's trying to run a marathon at eight minute mile pace and you run the first 10K at seven minute mile pace, And then you start cramping up, you know, halfway through that race or mile 16 or 17, I'm probably going to say that you started too fast. You fatigued your muscles enough early enough in the race that now as the fatigue really starts to mount as you approach the 20 mile mark, now we're starting to get muscle cramps. So it's usually either a pacing problem or a training problem with not running the distance or close enough to the distance in training. Okay, next question. For runners who may not have the financial resources for a strength coach or a background with strength training, what are some resources that could provide a good starting place to help the runner begin doing more strength work? Where could they start? Well, I always think runners should start with bodyweight strength exercises. You can do them at home. You certainly don't need a strength coach to do them. And the injury risk of doing a bodyweight exercise is so low that we really just don't have to worry about it. And what I love about strength training for runners is that if you can build the habit of strength training, that habit will take you far and you can always progress. So the progression of strength training for runners should really begin with bodyweight exercises. You can get very strong with bodyweight exercises. You can build amazing injury resilience with bodyweight exercises. And I know for me personally, this is how I got started with strength training. 
And I started by creating a series of routines, a lot of routines that many of you know right now, routines like the standard core routine, the ITB rehab routine. These routines can be found on the strength running website. And these are essentially 10 to 20 minute body weight strength and core workouts that you can do almost anywhere that don't require any equipment, save a simple exercise band. And they are highly effective. They are going to prevent injuries. They're going to help you get stronger. They're going to improve your running form and make you more efficient with better running economy. And I think because of all of that, ultimately, they're going to help you become a faster runner. And we have a collection of many bodyweight strength exercises on our website. If you search best strength exercises for runners on strength running, you're going to get an article that includes many videos of our best strength routines. And if you follow our sandwiching concept, you can just do one of these routines after each run that you do, and you're going to be a lot stronger than the average runner. Now, if you want to keep going, if you want to continue to progress, the next step is to start introducing some simple implements at home, something like an exercise band, a kettlebell, a medicine ball, or even a set or two of dumbbells. These are going to allow you to add extra resistance to a lot of the exercises that you can do with just your body weight. So you can continue getting stronger. You can continue with this journey into strength training and become an even better athlete that way. Now, once you've started doing bodyweight exercises, you've developed the habit of strength training regularly, and then you start introducing implements to add resistance to those exercises, the next step is to actually start some weightlifting. Now, you can go to strengthrunning.com strength and sign up for our email series that talks about weightlifting for runners, because this gets a little bit more complex than simple bodyweight exercises. You do want to make sure that your form is very good. If you're not lifting with proper form, there's an injury risk to that. Now, I think the benefits of lifting weights far exceed any risks of injury, and we should definitely not let that stop us. So... If you're worried about getting injured in the gym, lifting some weight, I would encourage you to just get started. Really focus on good form, err on the side of lifting less weight and being more conservative with your lifting because it's not about how much weight that you lift. It's really about the movement itself. I remember a strength coach told me that weightlifting for runners is really coordination training under resistance. And that, I think, is a wonderful encapsulation of how we should be thinking about weightlifting for runners and a lot of the benefits that it gives us. Yes, it's going to make us more injury resilient. Yes, it's going to make us stronger, but it's also going to make us much more of an athlete. We're going to improve our coordination, our balance, and that's going to improve our running economy and our ability to sprint really fast. And the email series that you can sign up for at strengthrunning.com strength is a good introduction to how you should think about weightlifting for runners. But ultimately, let's start with this progression. Get started with the bodyweight exercises. We have so many resources at Strength Running to help you with this. Then you can add in some simple implements at home, like a med ball or a kettlebell. And then when you're ready, when you've developed some competence and some general strength with those movements, you can move into your own home gym if you have the space for it and you want to outfit a part of your home with a gym, or you can just get a gym membership. And then you can do what I call 
ideal strength training. You can do the sandwiching concept for most of your runs, and then twice a week you can get in the gym and actually lift heavy weights with barbells. That's what I consider ideal. That's what most of pro runners do for their strength training. They do a lot of that very therapeutic, rehabilitative body weight exercises, mostly as prehab. And then they do get into the gym occasionally a couple times a week and lift heavier weights. That is a great schedule. Our next question is, when hills are not an option, what are some appropriate workouts that will properly fatigue the quads for a downhill race? This is a great question because I know a lot of runners are gearing up for hilly races, whether it's a downhill race, whether it's a an entirely uphill race, or whether it's just a race that has a lot of elevation gain and loss. And if you don't have a lot of hills to train on, this can present a challenging situation. And so I want to talk to the runners who are gearing up for all kinds of hilly races, not just those for downhill races. The number one thing I'll say is that mileage in your total volume is going to make you better at hill running than runners who don't have as much endurance. Better runners are simply going to be better hill runners. Even if you've been running on a lot of hills and one runner hasn't, if that runner's a lot better than you, he's still going to beat you on hills. So let's focus on just becoming a better runner overall, gradually increasing our volume, doing strategic workouts, and then all the little things that aren't really that little. Now, if you are gearing up for a downhill race, let's think about what we are going to experience in a downhill race a lot of impact, a lot of slamming your feet down on the ground as you're running downhill. Gravity is assisting you with your running. And so every foot strike is going to have a bit more of a multiplier of your body weight. And so that means we need to condition our legs, our muscles, our connective tissues for all that extra impact. We can do that a couple ways. Number one, weightlifting. That toughens up those connective tissues. It makes you stronger and better able to handle all of that extra impact force. And it's going to improve your coordination so that you're running, no matter what pace you're running at, with better running economy. Now, we can also do some sprinting. You know, we can do some strides or hill sprints. And if we were to find even a slight downhill, especially one on pavement, and do some downhill strides or maybe some not 100%, we don't want to be sprinting at maximum intensity, but you know maybe 98% repetitions of about 100 meters downhill, this is going to condition our legs to better handle some of those impact forces. Now, there are also some treadmills that have the ability to have a negative incline. So I would definitely check your gym if you belong to one, or if you have a treadmill at home, double check to see if you can set it for a negative incline. And then you can practice with running downhill on your treadmill. Now, finally, the the next thing you can do is just run a lot on hard surfaces. Now, this does have an injury risk because you don't want to be running on a concrete sidewalk, the hardest surface you can imagine, all of the time. But 
that stress is also protective. If you are doing a lot of running on a hard surface, your body's gonna be used to that extra impact and it's going to build extra resilience to handle that impact. Like everything, our body will adapt. And so if you're adding a little bit more of these hard surfaces into your training week after week, then your body's gonna be more accustomed to more impact force coming up through your legs. That I think is less effective than weightlifting, than doing some sprints, especially on a slight downhill or trying a negative incline on your treadmill. But if you were to use a combination of these strategies in your training, when you really don't have too many hills as an option in your training, you'll still be fairly well prepared for that downhill race. Our next question is, what should off-season for us regular runners look like? I know it's not simple, but think of it as a percentage of peak volume done in the past or maybe intended for the next training block. How would you think about this? This is a great question. And it does depend a little bit on what you are trying to do in the future and what you have just done in the past. So for example, if you just had a very grueling, long season, you probably want a more extended, easier off-season. And the opposite of that is true as well. So I like to tell runners, let's, in your off-season, make sure that, number one, we're not losing a lot of fitness. Yes, some detraining is going to happen, and that's okay. But let's make sure we're doing a volume, or in other words, mileage, that's easy enough to feel easy, but it's enough to maintain fitness, probably no more than 25 to 30% of a reduction in peak volume for maybe a three to five week period. If you start running substantially less than what you're used to for more than about a month, you are gonna start the detraining process and you're just gonna see your fitness decline over time. So we, we don't wanna spend a lot of time in this easier off-season time period, but just enough to really recharge physically and also psychologically. If you are, you know, you're at the end of that off season and you're just feeling like you want to train hard again, that's a good indication that you're ready for that hard training. Now, from a workout perspective, workouts should also be relatively easy. Now, that doesn't always mean that they're easy to complete, but they're just easy compared with what you have been doing in the past. And so we can do more aerobic workouts, anything at half marathon pace, marathon pace, tempo or lactate threshold. Those are all aerobic workouts. We could do short hill workouts or short fartlek workouts. As long as you're not going to the well, you're not doing workouts where you quote unquote see God. None of those types of workouts that leave you just wasted on the side of the track for an hour afterward. We want to make sure that we are doing maybe one workout a week, but it's also okay to not do any workouts. If you just have run, say, your goal race, maybe it's a half marathon, maybe it's a marathon, you do want to take maybe about a week off and then have maybe two, maybe three weeks of no workouts. That's okay. You're letting your body fully recover. You're letting the engines get back to neutral. You are hormonally recovering from all that training and racing that you just did. And it's important to give your body a break. Now, if you are running some easy runs, you're gradually increasing your mileage during this off-season, after two or three weeks, you start implementing an easy workout. Well, within another couple of weeks, you'll be ready to start your next training plan, which will include some more challenging types of workouts. Our next question is about returning to running. 
How do you start running again after three months off from an injury? My one word answer to this question is gradually, but let's get more specific. Three months is a fair, fairly long time period, right? And after a month, we are going to experience some more severe effects of detraining. Our average easy pace is going to drop substantially, and our ability to run fast in a workout or race situation is really going to deteriorate. And after three months, that process is just going to be magnified. So we really have to listen to your body rather than a specific plan. If you have been doing some aerobic cross training like pool running or biking, anything like uh, the elliptical, and you've been doing some strength training, that's gonna make this transition much easier because you're not gonna be starting from scratch. You are gonna be maintaining some of your cardiovascular or aerobic fitness, while at the same time, not losing any strength or durability in your muscles, bones, and connective tissues. So if you aren't running right now, but you really wanna be, but you can't, let's try to do some aerobic cross training and lifting weights ideally, so that when we do get back to running, that process is is a lot easier to go through. Now, when you are coming back after three months off from an injury, this is a scenario where you're going to have to ignore your previous mileage levels. I know I talk a lot about knowing your baseline mileage. Your baseline mileage is a mileage level that you're very comfortable with, and you can increase your mileage much more quickly than the old 10% per week rule up to your baseline mileage, but then you should probably be more conservative increasing your mileage after your baseline mileage level because it's uncomfortable for you. It's stressful. But in this scenario, we sort of need to ignore that because your baseline mileage after three months of getting in worse shape in this detraining process, your baseline mileage is likely going to be substantially lower than it was previously. So first, we just need to see how some short runs affect your body. So the way I like to think about this is with a testing approach. We want to go run for 20 minutes and then just see how your body responds to that. If you respond great, okay, now let's run for 30 minutes. The next thing that we can test is running two days in a row. The next thing we can test is maybe running a series of strides. The next thing we can test is maybe doing a more substantial long run. And then we can add in maybe an easy fart lick, maybe something as simple as six by 30 seconds or six by a minute. Not very hard, not very fast, but a little bit harder than usual just to test how we feel. And what we're doing is we're using this testing approach to introduce a little bit more stress at a time to see how your body responds to it. And hopefully, Over the course of a couple weeks, you'll start to get a better idea of what you're capable of, what is stressful for your body right now, and what you're still comfortable doing. And over time, probably one to three months, you'll be able to get back to your normal workload. You'll be able to get back to the same mileage levels and start doing workouts that are similar to what you've been doing in the past. Strength training is your friend in this time period because it's one of the most important things you can do to prevent injuries. And when you are building your workload, whether that's volume, intensity, or both, then you're much 
more likely to get injured. And so we want to be doing everything possible to reduce your injury risk, to mitigate that risk, and really ensure that you're doing everything you can to stay healthy at a time period where the injury risk is a little bit higher. All right, runners, that's our episode for today. I had a lot of fun answering these questions, and there were quite a few of them. So I did go through them somewhat quickly. If you have additional follow-up questions for me, feel free to reach out. You can always reach me at support at strengthrunning.com. You can also search the Strength Running site for any of these issues. For over a decade, I essentially would write long articles about the questions that runners asked me. So if you think that you have a question or a follow-up question for me, I probably have written something in depth to answer your question on the Strength Running site. And if you got value from this episode or you just want to thank me for answering your question, a review of the podcast in Apple Music is most appreciated. Finally, I'm so grateful for the support of our sponsor, Athletic Greens. They're the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition super simple, even for me. I personally struggle with eating, you know, all the healthy food I know I should be eating. I definitely have a soft spot for (laughs) some unhealthy foods. So I find that their product, AG1, is really helpful. One scoop a day gives me 75 vitamins and minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, including a green superfood blend, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 helps me fill in any nutrition gaps in my diet. And Lord knows that I have gaps. And it gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day, which I really like. Now, I've got three of my kids back in school, and I'm recording this in January. So I know I've got to support my immune system, or else I'm getting sick, and then I can't run. But what I really love about AG1 is that it changes over time. Over the last decade, they've made 53 separate improvements to the formula based on the latest research to make all of those nutrients more absorbable and more rigorous with the third-party testing that they do. Go to athleticgreens.com Jason, and you can see the great offer they've put together for podcast listeners. You'll get a year's worth of free vitamin D, which is really important for your immune system and also for your mood in the winter months when you're not in the sun as much and you're not producing as much vitamin D. They're also going to throw in five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can sign up for a single shipment or for a monthly drop if you want to make AG1 a part of your regular healthy lifestyle. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to sign up today. All right, runners, thanks so much for submitting your questions. I had a lot of fun with this. If you want to potentially ask me a question for the podcast in the future, make sure you're following me on Twitter or Instagram. My handle is JasonFitz1. All right, friends, we'll be in touch soon. 